St. James. I'm glad that all of you are here, and welcome to the uh, nice people watching on the live stream. We're glad that you're worshiping with us at home, too, and uh, long for the day when you will be back here with us in person. Uh, just a couple quick announcements. Uh, actually, just basically just one, one announcement, and that is new members class tonight is at 6.30, and tonight we're going to be talking about uh, communion. And so if you're not a Lutheran and you're interested in how communion works, or you are a Lutheran and you forgot how communion works, or if you think you know how communion works and would just like to talk about it with other people, like feel free to show up tonight at 6.30, and we'll talk about that. And it's always a really good uh, conversation, and it's a good group of people that are members of that class too. So it's a great chance to come and meet new people who are um, uh, coming into the church. So feel free to show up for that. I think that's all. That's the only thing I wanted to say to you guys as far as announcements are concerned. Stand with me and let me pray for us, and then we'll continue worship. God, we are people who are so self-centered. We are so turned on ourselves. Uh, we're self-protective. We experience vast amounts of shame when we think that we aren't, be, we aren't portraying ourselves the way we want to be portrayed. Father, take all of that away. Turn us out from inside of ourselves outwards towards you and towards each other. Give us love in our hearts for you. Give us love in our hearts for each other. Help us to respond to your love for us so that we love you and we love each other more. This is a work that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking your Holy Spirit to come now and make that real in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values, 
Turn our hearts to you again, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be the God of your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to you again, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be the God of your people today. We turn to you and to you alone to be our God, our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for he has promised to intercede for us. It is in him that we pray in the fellowship of his body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
psalm for this morning is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, la- those who build it labor in vain. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis 2. Jesus is going to quote from this reading in the gospel reading. Then the Lord God said, so God is just, in Genesis 2, he's just finished creating Adam. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 2. This is, uh, um, most scholars believe that Hebrews is not a letter that was written, but a sermon that was preached. And that's been recorded. And actually there's one one hint of that in there. Maybe this is kind of boring. But uh, verse 6, can you see it? Verse 6, he says, it's been testified somewhere. and And then he quotes from Psalm, from one of the Psalms. That's not the kind of thing that if you were writing you would do. You would look it up and then put the you know, you would say, but if you're speaking, I do that all the time. Like it says somewhere in the Bible this, and then you would quote it. It's, there's a lot of those in Hebrews, which indicates that it's probably a sermon that's being preached that's transcribed. Anyway, in this part of the sermon, he's arguing that Jesus is much greater than the angels. And he makes reference to this Hebrew legend that when Jesus, when, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, he sent them down with, um, with angels. And that was a powerful event. But what we get from Jesus is even more powerful. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, like the Ten Commandments, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it wasn't wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, and that, 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 that text is referring to Jesus. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now he's got glory and honor and he rules over everything. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, 
He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies God and those who are sanctified us all have one origin. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Talking about how Jesus, the sanctifier, and we, the sanctified, are all human. So he calls us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 10. Um, what you're looking at in the bulletin, the lectionary reading does not have verse 1 in it. I, I don't know why 
in the common lectionary, they left out verse one. I'm going to read it though, because it's actually important to what Jesus is trying, what's going on in the story. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, you may be seated. Um, Before we start, let me do a couple of uh, little preliminary uh, caveats here, and then we'll get going. Uh, One is um, this sermon, you guys just read the sermon text. This sermon is about marriage and a divorce. And so the temptation is going to be, for those of you who aren't married, maybe to say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. And l- let me just say that um, try, pay t- try to pay close attention and still stay locked in, even if you're not married, because you might be married someday. That's a possibility, right? Also, here's the main reason, though, is that the things about living in a postmodern world that make marriage difficult are the exact same things that make other relationships difficult. And the things that Jesus teaches us that help us have successful marriages are the same things that Jesus teaches us that help us have successful friendships and relationships with our parents or with our cousins or with our coworkers. And so, yes, I mean, this text is about marriage and divorce, but it's, it's just about, the, the, a lot of this stuff just applies to relationships in general. And so please uh, 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 stay locked in. Uh, second thing, here's the second thing. Those of you who know me and know my story will know that I don't need to say this, but I am not preaching this sermon from a place of ability or knowledge. I'm not a, I'm not a great husband. And... Um, so there's this famous story where uh, Bob Gibson is pitching to Tim McCarver, and Tim McCarver, the catcher, comes out to the mound to talk to him, and Bob Gibson shoes him away and says, get back behind home plate. The only thing you know about pitching is you can't hit it. And I find myself in that position when I talk about marriage. The only thing I really personally know about marriage is that I'm not a good husband and that Angela is an extremely gracious person. So and, and without getting into the rest of my story, I can confidently say that this is the case. Here's what I have, though, is I do all of this stuff I've experienced on the forgiveness end, not on the, let me give you three tips on how you can have a great marriage like I do, but let me show you how Jesus can heal relationship. 
Really, my only tool is I know what grace is. I know what it's like to be forgiven. And so at no point in here is this me talking down to anybody. Like, I'm with you. I like, I, my, my marriage needs saving. My, my attitudes need uh, repented of and adjusted, and um, God is good to do that sort of thing. Okay, the third caveat is this. This is going to be, uh, this is going to be a touch long, the sermon is. And I know that, like you guys are saying, they're already a touch long. You don't need to tell us. But I, I'm, I'm telling you, it's going to be a touch longer than that. And here's why. Because there's a lot in here that a lot of you are going to need to connect with. Me too. And like, I'm, I'm fully aware that when I talk, when I preach to a room like this, that it's not a few of you that have been divorced or are divorced or are going to be divorced. And I'm sensitive to that. But I need to say a lot of things from this text to anybody who's in any sort of relationship. And I've got to do it now, I think. And the reason why is, is because this might be the only marriage counseling you let me do with you. Anybody who does marriage counseling knows that quite frequently, like by the time that somebody freaks out enough to like get a hold of me and say, we've got to talk to you, it's too late. And I don't want you to be like that. It's a commercial for come and talk to me beforehand. And that's not always the case. Some of you have done a good job of like, like work, being out in front of it like, and fighting against it. But like for those of you who are like, we don't need to talk to anybody. We got it all taken care of. Until like you come home and she says, I- I'm telling you, I'm done. I'm leaving. And then you're like, we got to go talk to Aaron right now. At which point, it's a seriously uphill climb. I've got like whatever, however much time I've got in the next few minutes to do marriage counseling with you now and try to get into your head that this is, this is what you need to think about marriage. Jesus' way, okay? So, unfortunately, there's just a lot to do here, and it might be a touch long. I'm going to try to make it interesting with engaging stories and animating facial expressions. I'll try to do that. If it doesn't work, though, just like hang in there and fight through this with me. All right, so let's start. First of all, let me say this, is that we're going to start off with a topic that's not the main topic of this text. We have to start off by talking about something that this text isn't primarily about, And it might surprise you to find out that that's divorce. Because some of you read this text and you think, this text is about divorce. And I want you to think, I don't want you to think like that. Because that's the way the Pharisees think. The Pharisees' question is about divorce. But Jesus' response is about marriage. And now maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's the same thing, like divorce and marriage, right? And I'll say, like, you realize how ridiculous that is, right? Marriage and divorce are almost the exact opposites. But we don't think like that. We come into marriage, and like the Pharisees, a lot of times we're like, okay, so how can I get out of this? Like, we, we don't, we, you would never do this with any, like, anything else, right? Like, I mean, you, wouldn't, like, you wouldn't start a friendship with somebody and instantly be thinking, okay, I'm really going to want to bail on this and maybe in a couple years, and what are the steps I need to take now? No, nobody does that. Like you wouldn't go to like the doctor's office to talk like a follow-up on a hernia surgery you had. And the doctor said, I got some business cards for some funeral homes around here. You're going to want to keep some of this in mind. You'd be like, that's inappropriate. Like, I just want to get over this hernia. I don't want you preparing for my demise. But that's the, like when we, when we come to a text like this, frequently we're like, okay, so marriage, okay, that's right, great Jesus, we should love each other. But like, what, how can I get out of this if I really need to? And that's not an unimportant conversation because, like I said, a bunch of you are divorced, but it's not the main conversation. So I'm going to start off talking about divorce, but that's not what Jesus wants us to talk about. The question's about divorce. 
but the answer is about marriage. And so that's where we're going to go in the second half of this, okay? But really quickly, let me talk about divorce. And now to do that, to start off, I'm going to explain to you why I read verse 1 of Mark chapter 10, even though for whatever reason it's not in the lectionary. It doesn't take up a lot of ink. I don't know why they wouldn't, or it doesn't take up a lot of time to read it. But for whatever reason, the common lectionary that all of our churches use leave out verse 1. But it's actually super important, and I'll tell you why. It says, Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and he taught the crowds there. Okay, here's why this is important. Because in verse 2, it says, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In the NIV, actually, the NIV uh, kind of gets closer a little bit to, the, uh, to the, the, the impulse of this phrase when it says that the Pharisees were trying to trap him. That's the word it used. They're trying to trap him to ask about divorce. I'll tell you what this has to do with verse 1 in just a second. But in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, divorce was a common thing. Half the fair, even the Pharisees, like we, we like to be, we, we're like with the Pharisees, most of us are like, oh, they're legalists and they're so hard and like they're hardcore and all these rules. But even the Pharisees, half of the Pharisees are very, very no fault divorcish. Half of them aren't, actually a little bit less than half of them are, but a lot of them are. I'm going to give you a quote here. This is a famous quote. Some of you may, maybe have heard a pastor say this quote before. It's from the Mishnah. And it's a, it's a conversation between some rabbis in the school of Shammai, which is the minority school, but they're kind of the more the hardline conservatives. And then the rabbis from the school of Hillel, who are the more open liberals, they're the bigger group. And it's a conversation about divorce and what are the grounds of divorce. And it's a discussion about Deuteronomy 24, which we're going to come back to in a minute because the Pharisees quote Deuteronomy 24 to Jesus. But the discussion goes like this. Let me read it to you. Uh, the rabbis of the school of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, unless she's been you know, sexually immoral, sexually unfaithful. For it's written because he has found her indecent in anything. And the word indecent, they say, has to do with sexual immorality. So there's one reason these rabbis say that you can get divorced, and that's if your wife cheats on you. By the way, we'll come back to this. It always is like, how can a man divorce his wife? Never, how can a woman divorce her husband? And we'll talk about this in just a few, there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it in just a few minutes. Jesus is troubled by that himself. Uh, however, here's the response from the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel say, he may divorce her even if she spoiled the cooking for him. For it's written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. Hillel says, it's not indecency in the sense of like sexual immorality. It just means like she's not very good at anything that you decide. You can choose. She's not very good at it. You're free to, get, uh, free to divorce her. Rabbi Akaba, who's a member of the school of Hillel, says, even if he's found a woman more beautiful than she is, he can divorce her because it's written right after that. And it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. So basically, uh, no fault divorce, which uh, can I do a little commercial uh, against no fault divorce for just a few minutes? Like no fault divorce, wherever it's existed in the world, whether it's in ancient, um, whether it's in first century Judea, uh, firmly approved by a large group of Pharisees, or whether it's uh, the American version of no-fault divorce, which goes back to the early 1970s. It is always oppressive to women. Always. It's the only, think about it, it's the only time that we, in our culture, like sign names on paper, saying we agree to make these promises to each other. And we put those, put the paper in the county courthouse. And then if one person says, I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm out. I'm done. It's okay. That's fine. 
Go ahead. I mean, I know that there you know, might, might be alimony or child support or something like that. But typically speaking, no-fault no, no, no divorce has always been oppressive to women. Women are always behind the ball economically, eight, behind the eight ball. And the reason why is because frequently women have to give up work to make babies. It's, it's, it's usually not the husband who, I'll say usually, uh, in all the cases I'm aware of, the husband doesn't get pregnant and have to take time off work in order to carry and deliver a baby. It's usually not the husband who leaves work, who takes the part-time job so, that, she, so that, that he can drive the kids to soccer practice and that sort of thing. And then once that happens, when the man says, I'm done, I've pulled out, and the court says, well, j j you know, give her some money and it'll be okay. The, the woman has been seriously inconvenienced. And this is just a commercial for like, I, I don't know where you guys are at on this. I don't really, I haven't really, can't remember talking about divorce or no-fault divorce in here. But it's one of the great human rights evils of our age, no-fault divorces, that people can make covenant commitments and then bail on it for no reason besides, I want to. Okay, that's my spiel here. That's where the rabbis are out. And in fact, so I'll give you an, another example real quick. There is, um, so the Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew. People didn't speak Hebrew in Jesus' day. So there's two, basically, roughly two translations kicking around that you could find. One is Greek. That's one that a lot of people can speak because Greek is like the English of the first century. It's like the business language of the Roman Empire. The other is Aramaic, which is the street language for the Jews. The Aramaic Targum, that's, that's the translation of the prophets. Do you know that passage in Malachi, which talks about hating divorce? And it says, the man who hates his wife and divorces her covers his garments with violence. The man who hates his wife and divorces her covers his garments with violence. Basically, what it's, it's, it's almost saying like, if you hate your wife and divorce her, it's almost like murder. You're basically taking her life away from her. Well, in the, the rabbi's translation of that into Aramaic, in the Targum Jonathan, it says this, if you hate her, divorce her. It's actually, it's translated that way. It's so explicitly geared towards men being able to get out of a relationship if they want to, that they'll even mess with scripture to make it say, if you hate her, you can divorce her. So anyway, that's what's going on here uh, 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 in, in the first century with, with Jesus. The, disciple, the, the, the Pharisees are trying to trap him by asking about divorce, which is weird because divorce is not really anything that anybody's going to be offended by Jesus' teaching. So what does it mean, trap? This is a good question, I think. Here's what it means. This is why verse 1 is important. Where is Jesus preaching at the time? Across the Jordan in Judea. Who do you know of? who that was his ministry venue across the Jordan in Judea. That's where John the Baptist ministered, right? Do you guys remember what happened to John the Baptist? He got offed. Why did he get offed? Because he had the guts to say divorce is wrong. He had the guts to tell Herod, you can't divorce your wife and marry your sister-in-law. And what did he get for that? He got his head cut. What's going on here? This is not a theological conversation primarily. This is them trying to set Jesus up. Jesus is, they're trying to trap Jesus. If they can get him to say that divorce is wrong, there's a chance that Herod will find out and say, I got to take care of this guy too. That's what they're hoping for. So what's at stake here? It's a theological question about divorce. It's also a question. It's always a question of like, how are, you, how are we going to be kingdom people? How are we going to be? Are, are we going to be the kind of people who self-sacrifice, self-sacrificially love each other, our friends, our family, our spouses, or are we going to be the type of kingdom of this world, where 
So in this case, all the roughness. Men with power have the ability to use women and dispose of them whenever they see fit. Is that the kind of kingdom that we want? Or are we going to be a member of Christ's kingdom? Where power doesn't mean that. Power is something that you have to give to your spouse. Power is something that you have to give up to your friends in acts of responsibility. That's the choice. And no matter how you frame this, that's the question. The kingdom of Jesus is self-sacrificial. The kingdom of this world is built on radical self-love. Radical self-love. And it could be the King Herod type. You know, Herod Antipas sees his sister-in-law and says, she is hot. We know this from Josephus. Propositions her and says, hey, let's sleep together. And she says, I'm not going to sleep with you unless you divorce my sister-in-law and I'll divorce your brother and then I'll sleep with you. And that's what you, that sort of like, or the Pharisees who are like, tell me, how can I get out of a marriage? I want marriage. I like sex. I like a woman to cook for me. But when I want to get out of that, how do I do it? That is radical self-love. And that is what Jesus is opposed to. Okay. Two minute sidebar. I am not saying at all along with the scripture, I'm not saying at all that divorce is never a reality that God gives permission to, all right? There's three cases. The Christian church has typically, you can write these down, and then I'm going to move on. This isn't really what the sermon is about. I don't want it to be about divorce. I want it to be about marriage. There's three cases in scripture where divorce is permitted. One, in Matthew 19, parallel text to our story here, where Jesus says that divorce is permitted in the case of marital infidelity. That it's not encouraged, but it is allowed. It's understood that if somebody cheats on somebody else, divorce is permitted. The second case is in the case of abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if your spouse leaves you and abandons you and won't return, you are free to divorce them and still be within the, the pale of God's will. The third is related to that. It's not mentioned specifically in scripture, but the Christian church has historically said that abuse, that physical abuse also falls under this category of abandonment. Because the danger of being murdered is probably the worst form of being abandoned, right? And so physical abuse falls into that category. If anybody wants to talk to me about any of those three, like I'm all on board. And like some of you have experienced these three. And like I completely support you. And so I just want to be careful that nobody thinks that like Jesus is hardline here. And so I want to be hardline too. But I also do want to acknowledge that Jesus shows grace to people who have been put into positions that they shouldn't have been put into in the first place. But, like I said, that's not my main point here. I don't really want to talk about that. What I want to do is to argue that, like I said earlier, that divorce is based upon radical self-love. By the way, every one of your relationship problems, your problems with your kids, your problems with your parents, your problems with your classmates or with your coworkers or with your neighbors, every one of those problems is based upon radical self-love, which is the coin of the postmodern realm. We all believe, even those of you who are Christians and know it's not right, Deep down in your hearts, you are struggling with the belief that you are the most valuable thing and that your number one responsibility is to love and care for yourself. Some of us say it explicitly. All of us subtly believe it. Uh, this week in the New York Times, I don't know how many of you read the, read the New York Times, but on September 30th, uh, so uh, what is that, Wednesday, Thursday, there was an op-ed in the New York Times by a woman uh, a woman named uh, Lara, Lara Bazelon, and she wrote an op-ed this week called Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love, which is why I've been using that word, radical self-love. And it's one of the points that Jesus is making here is that, yes, divorce is an act of radical self-love. 
And here's what she says. This is a heartbreaking story. It's in, in the New York Times. You can look it up. And I would encourage you to read the whole thing because it is, it is very, very sad. She says this. I used to believe that divorce is a terrible thing, particularly when children are involved. Growing up, I absorbed cultural tropes about absent fathers and efficiency apartments, mothers struggling to support themselves, awful step-parents and unwanted step-siblings. Oh, by the way, uh, give me 15 more seconds to do another little sidebar. Getting divorced and saying, it's all going to be good, it's for the better of all of us, is rich people's sport. Her little thing about like, I just imagined divorce, single fathers living in efficiency apartments, mothers struggling with multiple jobs to try and buy shoes for their kids. She's going to go on to say, that's all bogus. Well, it's easy for you. She's a law professor at the University of San Francisco. It's, it's rich people's sport to be like, ah, divorce, remarriage, whatever. Like divorce, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't even know why I need to argue for this, but it's statistically proven that divorce is devastating economically for families. Devastating. And to pretend like it's not is such an upper class, snobbish thing to do. That's not my main point. I'll just keep on reading here. The radical self-love is my main point. She's going to call her out on that, though, while I have a chance. To this day, divorce is portrayed as precarious and grim. Parents whose marriages break apart are made to feel they failed catastrophically. Divorce is shameful, traumatic, and bad for the kids. But I've learned that divorce can also be an act of radical self-love that leaves the whole family better off. She's not going to quote any statistics to back that up because all the statistics say otherwise. More on that a little bit. My divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. It freed my children. This makes my stomach hurt to say this. It freed my children, then five and three, from growing up in a profoundly unhealthy environment. Now, you might be imagining that what she's going through is something horrible. And if it was, like I would be sympathetic to her and fully support her. But here's what she's going through. There was no emotional or physical abuse in our home. There was no absence of love. I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me is in love with him still. I suspect that will always be the case. I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced my husband because I loved myself more. You, you need to read this thing because she goes on to describe how oppressive caring for her children was. And how her husband said, you're traveling too much for work. You stay at work too late. And how the best thing she can do for her kids is to not be with them. To give them an example of an adult who cares about her work. It is heartbreaking. Now, before we bash on her too much, let me say this. Every single one of us in here feels like that. Every single one of us feels like my best path forward is to love myself more. L Laura has the guts or the spiritual immaturity or some combination of the two to actually say it out loud in the largest daily newspaper in the country. To say this is what divorce is. It's an act of radical self-love. I choose to say no to all the other people, not who've harmed me in any way. Like, I'm still in love with my husband. My kids are wonderful. But I need to love myself more than I love them. That's what's behind divorce. And by, by the way, that's what's behind your problems with your friends. That's, that, that's what's behind the, the problems with my kids is I love myself more. I love myself enough that I'm ticked off when they yell at me, but I think I should be able to yell at them. I love myself more, and it needs to be repented of. And the solution is this. Look, what's the solution for Laura Bazelak? Is it, you know what? You just need to get back in there and grit your teeth and try harder. It's not going to work. I mean, it's better than nothing. Statistics show that it's better than nothing. But it's not actually going to work. 
What she needs is gospel transformation. Like none of us can stop loving ourselves more than we love each other, more than we love other people. None of us can. We need the gospel to make us turn from inside out to outward facing. We need the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection to teach us that other people in my life get my love before I get my love. And so I want to transition to the four things that this text teaches us, that Jesus can teach us in here about good marriage. And look, you're not, maybe you're not married, maybe you're divorced, but you're going to be married later. Maybe you just haven't gotten around to get, getting married yet, or you're thinking, I'm not going to get married, but, and maybe you will someday. I want you to pay attention to this. Because and like I said, this is Angela can get up here and, and tell you, like, this is not the things that I'm good at. I'm just going to try to describe to you from this text what Jesus is saying about how we can have good marriages. There, there might be more, but there's at least four in here that I want to point out to you, okay? The first is this. The focus of a good Christian marriage is life in the Trinity. The focus of a good Christian marriage is life in the Trinity. What do I mean? Look at, go back to verse three. Um, uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus, uh, can we get divorced? Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And then they answer, but they don't answer with a command from Moses. They say, Moses allowed, they avoid the command. They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They're referencing Deuteronomy 24, which I referenced earlier. What's going on in Deuteronomy 24? Like, God does not want people to get divorced. But in Deuteronomy 24, he basically says, y'all are going to, whether I ask you to or not. What what does Jesus say in verse 5? Because of your hardness of heart, you're going to do what you want. But if you're going to do divorce, here's what's not going to happen. You are not going to trade women. You are not going to take a woman and decide, I don't like her, and just throw her out. I'm not going to read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 for you, but you can go back and look at it later. Here's the deal. If you divorce somebody, you have to give them a certificate of divorce. What this does is it gives the woman the dignity of it being stated publicly, here's the reason why I got divorced. Now, if she tried to murder him in his sleep, that goes on the paper. And everybody in the culture knows she tried to kill him. And so they got divorced. That's legitimate, right? If it's, you know, she burnt his dinner or because he thought she wasn't pretty anymore, that goes on the paper. And that paper is less an indictment of her in that culture than it is of him. What God is saying is there's consequences. If you want to divorce this woman, I can't stop you. But if you do, you will publicly display your self-centeredness for the whole world to see. The other rule in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is this. You are not permitted to marry that woman again. What's he doing? He is stopping wife swapping. In a culture where the men are like, women belong to us, their possessions that are there for our sexual pleasure and to do daily tasks around the house. I get tired of one. I send her away. Somebody else has her for a while. I get tired of my new one. And I think, oh, I like that old one better. I go back and get her back. God is saying in Deuteronomy 24, you're not going to do that to women. They are, they are going to get the dignity of not being traded around like, uh, like slaves. That's what's going on there. But so, so, Jesus says, give me the command the most, and they don't. They give him the permission. And Jesus says, forget that. Let's go to the command. Verse 8, 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Here's the command. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now he's quoting Genesis 2, which we read earlier. Uh, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, what does this have to do with the Trinity? Check out that language. The man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. 
That is sexual language. Two people becoming one person. And it's about sex and marriage, right? Now, what, again, Aaron, what does this have to do with the Trinity? It has everything to do with the Trinity. A few verses prior to this, God creates Adam and Eve. It's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God is having a discussion about what this is going to look like. And Genesis 1, 26 says, let us, plural, make humans in our plural image. Now, what's the deal with the plural? God is talking, but there's a plural there. What's going on? Now, some of you, those of you who are Trinitarian Christians know what's going on. The Trinity's not taught in Genesis 1. We're not taught about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how those all work together. But we do see in Genesis 1 that God is more than one person, that God is having a conversation. And he says this, let us, we know it's the three of us, who have always from eternity past loved each other, enjoyed each other's presence, lived for communion with each other. Let us make humans in our image. And when he makes, uh, Genesis one twenty seven, keep on looking, male and female, he created them. When God makes humans in his image, he doesn't make one person. He makes two people, a man and a woman. Why? Because he wants the two of them to become one flesh, to reflect who he is. What am I saying? I am saying that marriage is a Trinitarian, it's, 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 it's the Trinity embodied. But, 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 and by the way, too, marriage is the closest we get to this. It's the only time in Scripture we get this, two will become one flesh language. That's almost Trinitarian. But it's true also for other relationships. It's true for friendships as well. And the, the reason why you crave friendship, the reason why you crave marriage, the reason why you crave sex is not just as simple as life is more fun when you got friends or sex really feels good or I want to make a baby. All that stuff is true. But the real reason deep down inside why you crave these things and the craving for these things is much bigger than the sum of the, you know, the, the, the craving for intimacy, even with friends, is much greater than like the times when you hang out and you're having fun. Even when you're hanging out and having fun with somebody you really care about, you sense that there's something more profound here that there's something primal, that I'm tapping into some deep secret of the universe. That's why sex is so ecstatic. It's why it's so valuable, because you're actually tapping into the nature of God. I'm going to read you this quote from Tim Keller, because he says this, and, and it might be easy to not believe me, but if somebody else says it, it might be good. Here's what he says. Now, he's, he's, this, this applies for all good relationships, but he's specifically talking about sex and marriage. He says, sex and marriage between a man and a woman points to the love between the father and the son. Sex and marriage is a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. Do you see what he's saying? When we, in covenant commitment with our spouses, are together with them intimately, we are experiencing a small taste of the joy and the pleasure and the exhilaration that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always experienced in each other's company. God wants us to be caught up into union with him. John 17, make us one, make them one like we're one. And one of the main ways he does this is community. Whether it's like we're talking about this morning, sex and marriage, or it's community group, or it's your friends at school. This is how you experience life in the Trinity is through this. I'm going to keep on reading this quote from uh, Tim Keller. Sex is glorious, not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, what I'm talking about now, but also because it points to the eternal delight of the soul that we will have in the new creation, in our loving relationships with God and each other. The best marriages, the best friendships are pointers to the deep 
infinitely fulfilling and final union we will have with Christ in love. Here's what I'm saying. I mean, all that's good stuff. But here's my main point this morning is that in your married life, in your friendship life too, but mainly this morning, in your married life, do not think that here's my God world here and then my married life's over here and take it or leave it. God doesn't really have anything to do with that. Or, I mean, he makes rules. You know, he wants us to stay married. He doesn't want us to have sex outside of marriage. But that's really kind of like my own private world. And what, the, what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 10 by quoting Genesis 2 in a Trinitarian text, what Tim Keller is saying, what I'm trying to say to you is that it's much more important than that. Your marriage is, it's the place where you experience life in the Trinity most clearly. Do not throw that away. Do not be like, well, we just can't get along. We used to be in love, but we're not in love anymore. I just feel like this is the right thing. Do not do that. Do not screw around with your unity with the Trinity. All right. Number two, the sovereignty of God. Verse nine. I'll make this one quicker, I promise. What therefore God, you guys know this, this is part of the wedding liturgy. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together, he's talking about marriage, right? What God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's what he's saying. Here's the main thing. God has joined you and your spouse together. God has joined you and your spouse together. Now, I know for a fact that in every married life, there are moments when you think, this has been a bad mistake. Like, I'm with the wrong person. Like, what have I done? And what, I'm try- what Jesus wants you to know is that you are not with the wrong person. You are with the person that God put you with. Now, I know in the middle of the tension of marriage, maybe it's like really, really broken. Maybe you're just at like the cold stage where there's this wall between you. And you're like, I don't even like know this person. I'm telling you, so this is, what it, this is what this text means, that the sovereign loving God wants you to be with that person. That's the person that he's designed for you. It's not based upon your choice. We make, in the postmodern world, we make marriage based upon choice. I've chosen you, and so that makes the marriage. No, you can easily choose to not be in the marriage. It's not based upon romance. It's not based upon feelings, God forbid. Anybody who's got any sort of emotional maturity at all knows that just minutes into any sort of committed relationship, you're like, I don't know if I feel that romantic or not. You know romance comes up and down, right? This isn't a Disney movie. Don't base your marriages on romance or on choice. Although choice and romance are an important part of it. And if they're not there, get some help. Talk to somebody. It's not based in an Eastern context. It's not based upon the will of your family. Although all these things might come in play to bring you and your spouse together. It is based upon the sovereign will of God. If you knew what God knows and you love yourself as much as God loves you, you would almost worship your spouse. If you knew what God knows and you loved yourself, if you loved yourself as much as God loves you, which none of those two are possible, you just have to do this on faith, you would almost get down and worship your spouse. You wouldn't do it because you know you should only worship Jesus, but you would love your spouse that much. Because God chose that person for you. Do not bail on it. Do not bail on it. Again, this is not just about, I'm not talking about divorce even. I'm just talking about commitment to life in this marriage. Commit yourself to it because it's how you experience the Trinity. Commit to having loving sex with your spouse because it's how you experience life in the Trinity. Commit to community group because it's how you experience life in the Trinity. Commit to your spouse because it's how you experience God's sovereign, sovereign love for you, okay? Third thing. Tenderheartedness. 
Did you notice this bit about the kids here in verses 13 through 16? If you're not thinking along Jesus' lines, it's almost like a non sequitur. But they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The disciples say, get them kids out of here. And Jesus sees it. He's indignant. That means angry. And says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he takes them in his arms and blesses them, laying his hands on them. Tender heartedness. The problem with the Pharisees is hard heartedness. Remember back in verse five. And what God wants us to have is tender heartedness. And he brings kids in here because, okay, this is a reset from two weeks ago. The kids are the marginalized in that culture. Tender-hearted towards those who are marginalized. Divorce marginalizes children. I, I, I go back and read that piece by Laura, where she says, my, my five and three-year-old need to learn what it's like that their mom is strong enough to love herself more than them. It is heartbreaking. And all the statistics show, like I, it's, I'm, this is not me like doing like fundamentalist pastor stuff at you. You, you, can, you can look it up. All the statistics show that the ability to do social adaptation the ability to, uh, the grades in school, the ability to sustain successful marital relationships later in life, directly tied to having a, a father and a mother in the same home. And I, what I, please, what I'm not trying to do is to make those of you feel away, those of you who are divorced, feel away that God doesn't want you to be bare. We live in a broken world. Let's move on. Let's forget the things that are behind and move on, chasing towards what God wants for us here. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I'm saying don't use it as an excuse. Do not marginalize your children. Your children are too valuable for that. But it's really not what I wanted to talk about, the kids. I, I know that it's talking about kids here. But remember who the kids are in this culture? They're the marginalized. Here's my main point. The most marginalized person in your existence is not that homeless man that you meet on the way to the office. It's not the prisoners that we should be visiting. It's not the unborn that we should be defending. All these things are super important. But the most nearest marginalized person in most of our existences is our spouse. Is the person who sleeps in our bed with us and sits at our table with us and walks around like a ghost in our house, ignored. Maybe at one point they wish, like I wish I had emotional connection with them. I wish we could talk freely about our dreams. Maybe you remember those first dates where like the conversation just wouldn't stop. God forgive me, Angela knows this is the case with me too. The most marginalized person in our house is frequently, most marginalized person in our life is frequently our spouse. I know this is the case because nobody ever comes to me and says, like, we, we have this great, wonderful, intimate marriage, and then all of a sudden one of us cheated and it's all over. Nobody ever comes to me and says, we like just had this really open, we were best friends and like we just loved being with each other. And then one night we had this massive out of the blue fight and it's all over now. Instead, what happens is, is people say something bad happened, and then tracking back two or three years, there's like coldness and indifference and emptiness and a wall of silence. And what Jesus is saying is, love your spouse like he's calling us to love kids. Love your spouse like they're marginalized. Take them away from the periphery of your world and put them in the center of your world. Like, I freely admit, I, like, God forgive me for this and help me to do this. Make your spouse the most important thing in your world. Make, make your relationship with your spouse an act of radical selflessness. Do not treat them as an extra in the story of your life, which is entitled Aaron Miller's Radical Self-Love. It's a sure way to, to, to ruin this whole thing. Soft-heartedness towards the marginalized, especially your family, especially your kids and your spouse, okay? Last thing and I'll be done. The main thing is, is here is we need the gospel. 
We need the gospel desperately. And thankfully, the Bible points us to the gospel. Jesus, I'm going to go back here one more time. Jesus quotes this wonderful text from Genesis 2, 24, which is about married sex. The two of them will leave their father and mother and become one flesh. Paul, do you guys guys remember this? Paul quotes the same verse in Ephesians 5. And I'm going to quote it for you. I'm not going to quote it. I don't have it memorized. I'm going to read it for you too. Ephesians 5, Paul says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see how this is diametrically opposed to the radical self-love that Laura is telling us about? Gave himself up for her. She's like, no, they need to give themselves up for me. I need to love myself. But Jesus, who is himself radical selflessness in body, calls us to do the same thing for our spouses. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without, this is super important. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What's he saying? Does Jesus love the church because the church is lovable? No, the church is lovable because Jesus loves her. Jesus doesn't respond to the lovability of the church by giving love. Jesus takes the unlovability of the church and pours himself out to make her lovable. What God is calling us to is way more beauty in the beast than it is Little Mermaid. Self-sacrifice to say that this is the heart of the gospel is that my God became a human to give himself up for me. And now he's allowing me and empowering me and calling me to give up myself for Angela and give up myself for my kids and give up myself for you guys, my friends and my church. Radical selflessness. And the end, the, the end game is this. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Look, so Paul is not saying that Laura is wrong. She's tapped into something. The love of self is definitely a thing. But Paul says, you want to love yourself? The best way to do that, ironically, is to give yourself up. You want benefit? Sacrifice yourself. Here, so here's what she thinks. She thinks if I abandon my husband and my kids and I live for my job, her job is, go read the article, her job is super important to her, that I'll finally experience fulfillment. And sadly, she's headed towards heartbreak. Like you and I know that. She doesn't see it yet. She's still on the drug of like, if I do what I want for myself, it's going to be better. And Paul is saying, I want it to be better. I want it to be good. I want you to be happy and fulfilled. But the way to get there is to love your wife more than you love yourself, to love your husband more than you love yourself. That's how you love yourself is by loving somebody more than yourself. It's almost Zen. It's so ironic, but that's the path of the gospel. Okay. Keep on going. here. It gets better. Um, Because we are members of Jesus's body. Therefore, now, now he quotes Genesis two, that Jesus quotes in Mark chapter 10. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Check this out. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you know why that's so weird? Think for a second about the timing of that. Paul says that the mystery of married sex is that it's about Christ and the church. But he's quoting a text that happened even before the fall. Even before Adam and Eve fell and screwed everything up and turned us all into self-lovers, God had created a plan to insert the gospel into the story subversively through marriage. So that even before they fell, even before they knew they were going to need forgiveness someday, Adam and Eve were already practicing what it means to be people who've been loved and accepted by someone who's pouring themselves out for them. 
And Paul insists this is what happens at the cross. He says, look, you and I, like I said, we cannot, I cannot stop loving myself. Like I can try real hard to love other people more. It's not possible. I'm turned in on myself now because of the fall. What do I need? I need the radical, selfless love of God the Father in Jesus Christ poured out in the Holy Spirit implanted into my heart. I need to sit at the foot of the cross and let the blood of Jesus cover me. I need to walk into the empty tomb and to feel the rush of the Holy Spirit's wind pouring out of there. It is only then that I will be freed to give Angela and to give you guys the kind of love, lovable making selflessness that Paul and Jesus are calling us to. Look, if somebody gave me $10 billion, I don't know why that would happen, but fingers crossed. Somebody gave me $10 billion and then one of you came up to me and said, hey, can I borrow 2,000 bucks? I'd say, here, have 5,000 bucks and just keep it. Because I would be so rich, I wouldn't care anything about the 5,000 bucks. Now here's the problem. When Angela needs me, and I'm like, I don't want to give her 5,000 bucks. It's because I've lost awareness of the fact that I have 10 billion bucks given to me at the cross of Jesus Christ. If I will live in the awareness that somebody, the creator of the universe, has selflessly loved me so, so much that I don't have to hold on to anything. I can just give love and give love and give love, and it still keeps coming back to me. From up there, or from here, from here, from there, from there, it doesn't matter. I can just give and give and give. But if I'm not there, if I've not tapped into the infinite love of God and Jesus Christ, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to clutch at it. I've got to love myself first. I can't love them. That takes away. I need, to set an, I need to set an example for them of what it's like for a strong man to decide to love himself. And What God is saying is, love your spouses. Love your friends. Pour it out to them. That's how you tap into who God is. Last thing and I'll be done. Marriage has been, so I'm, I'm going off the Genesis 2.24 thing and Paul's interpretation of it, Ephesians 5, and Jesus' interpretation of it in Mark 10. Marriage community group, your friendship with your classmates, whatever. But marriage was invented by God, that's what Genesis 2.24 means, to be a proving ground for the gospel. You want to experience the gospel? Into your marriage. You want your spouse to experience the gospel? Into your marriage. That's where it happens. It doesn't happen up here. It doesn't happen by memorizing the small catechism and saying, I believe in that. It doesn't even happen by saying the creed. It happens by living life as a forgiven in a forgiveness-giving person. And the best way to do that is in your family. The best way to do that in your, is, is in your marriage. May God give us the grace to be like that, okay? Let's stand. I'm going to pray for us that God would give us uh, that gospel-centered power to be selfless, and then we'll have communion together. Let's pray. God, again, I'm so, even as I'm preaching this, I feel so guilty for the way that I've treated Angela and the way I treat Angela. Please forgive me for being selfless, and I feel so guilty for the way that I treat my kids and I feel guilty for the way I hold myself back from my church and from my community group and from my friends. Father, help me to believe your gospel. Help me to believe that all the love in the universe, all the gifts in the universe have been given to me at the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, and to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to let it flow through me, to not grasp onto it, but to give it away. Father, help us to be a church of people who love our families and love each other more than we love ourselves. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning for everybody in here who is in a struggling, a broken marriage, for those who are divorced, 
Father, like, it's so, so hard. It's so, so hard to be in relationship now. I guess it's always been, Father, but it seems like right now it's so hard to be in relationship. Will you give us yourself in such a way that we become the kind of people you want us to be? Will you heal our broken marriages? Will you you heal our broken relationships with our kids? The the broken and strained relationships with our parents? The, the, The fractured relationship of the coworker or the classmate? God, it's only the gospel that's going to do We've tried being nice. We've tried making up. We've tried like saying interesting things. And Father, frankly, none of it's working. We need your Holy Spirit to apply the blood of your son Jesus to us. Please, Father, will you repair our relationships for your own name's sake, Lord, in your mercy. We bring these things to you, Father, because uh, like we read about in Hebrews, you have called us your, brother, your uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, your daughters and sons in your son, Jesus Christ, who's made us his brother and sister. And now we come to you asking you to heal our relationships, Father, because my relationship with you is my relationship with Angela. And my relationship with you is my relationship with my church. Will you make us one? Like you and your son and your spirit are one? We pray these things, confident that you hear them, confident that you answer them, because you have covered us up with the blood of your son, Jesus, and have invited us into your throne room as your daughters and sons. And so we pray this in the name of our brother, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. It's true what Jesus is saying about the life of the Trinity being connected to by community in Jesus Christ, whether it's marriage or just a conversation that you have here in the next few minutes. So take it seriously. Find somebody, maybe somebody that you know needs to be talked to, somebody that needs somebody to befriend them and to uh, um, uh, to reach out to them in the name of Jesus and do it now, okay? Go in peace.